0: Well, we continue this morning in our study through the Gospel of Luke. We come this morning to Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 18. I'll be reading through verse 35. Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 18. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? At that very time he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal places. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those of born of women there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another, and they say, we play the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors And sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Well, once again, this morning, we have seen the Lord put our service together. Because what we have seen in Jeremiah, and what we have seen in our psalm, And what we are seeing here in the Gospel of Luke are of a piece. And that's not my plan. Because my plan is simply, we're going to read the next passage in the Bible. Now we're in Jeremiah. Passage to passage to passage. We're going to read the next psalm that comes in the reading of our psalms and we're just going to preach the next passage in whatever book I'm preaching. So the fact that everything we have done and every aspect of the word that has been central in our service this morning all hangs together is not my work. We come here to Luke and John the Baptist is doing what John was speaking about from Jeremiah. He's asking why. He's trying to figure out what's going on. And so he sends his own disciples to Jesus. Now you'll remember, John can't go himself because he's sitting in Herod's jail. We saw this back in chapter 3. That's been a while, so maybe you've forgotten. But in chapter 3, beginning with verse... um, Let me get to the right passage here. Um, Verse 18... We read that so with many other exhortations he preached the gospel to the people but when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done Herod also added this to them all he locked John up in prison. So Herod was doing a lot of evil things. John rather than so many Preachers in our own day, were are trying to gain favor with those in power. John goes to Herod and calls him out on it. And he ends up in prison for his trouble. And we know how that ends up. John loses his head over the situation. So John is wondering what's going on as he's languishing in prison, he becomes increasingly perplexed by the things that he's hearing because what he's hearing about Jesus' ministry doesn't seem to fit with what he expected from the ministry of the Messiah. Now, on the one hand, Jesus' ministry did fit well with John's prophecy regarding the work of the Holy Spirit. But John had also prophesied about coming judgment. He had spoken of Jesus burning the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so far, nothing like that has happened. The Romans are still firmly in control. Their lackeys... Like Herod and Herodias were living in comfort. The religious establishment was just as arrogant and self-righteous as ever. And there is John sitting in prison, waiting for his expected execution. And so John looks at the circumstances, and he says, "Something's wrong here." Yeah, it was very much an echo of Asaph in Psalm 73. You'll remember that. Asaph is looking around and he's seeing the wicked prosper. And he can't figure it out. He says, have I, have I, I sought to be righteous and faithful in vain? And then the great turning point of that psalm is that Asaph comes into the sanctuary of God and his perspective is reordered. He begins to understand that God's judgment is not confined to the here and now. God is an eternal God. God doesn't have to judge people now, but God will judge. God will do everything well. He is righteous And those who disobey him and rebel against him and deny him, they will not get away with it. Now or now and in the future, they will be judged. And Asaph saw this. Asaph started the psalm talking about the fact that his feet were in slippery places. That is, he was starting to lose his faith. But by the end of the psalm, he says, it's not me at all. It's the feet of the wicked that are in slippery places. And all that I need is you, Lord. So John's going through that same kind of experience. Which, who can blame him? Everything started off so well. You know, if you like eating locusts and wearing camel hair. But John was out there in the wilderness and, and, and thousands were flocking to him. It was what we would consider to be a successful ministry. And then he get thrown in jail. And then the king says, I'm going to take your head off. And you say, what happened? And so John's trying to figure this out. And and since he can't go himself, he sends his disciples to Jesus. And he tells them to go to Jesus and ask the question. Are you the expected one? Are you the Messiah? I've told everybody You're the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Was I wrong? Should we look for another? Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? And in response, Jesus validates his ministry. Now, this is just so gracious, isn't it? Jesus could have, you know, sent the disciples back to John saying, you tell him this. If he thinks he's a man of God, he ought not be asking these questions. You tell him, just take whatever the Lord brings to you and don't worry about the rest of it. Jesus is so much more gracious than that. Now he was, Jesus is the Lord, Right? He is God incarnate. He could have answered John any way he wanted to. And yet, he gives John a response. And you see this so often in Scripture. You you come to um, some of these passages that are dealing with very difficult situations, difficult questions... And, you know, Paul, I'm thinking, right? Paul comes and Paul, in so much of his writing, anticipates the questions that his readers are going to be asking. Romans 9, Paul's talking about the sovereignty of God and salvation and God chooses and, and God elects and, and he, Paul says, I know what some of you are going to ask. Is this fair? Now, Paul's an apostle of Jesus Christ Paul is writing the word of God Paul could have said how dare you question me he didn't say that he answered the question he gave a rationale now his let's be fair his first impulse was to say who are you to talk back to God all right. And that needed to be said. But he, after that, he does give an answer. God is gracious that way. And we're back to that, that idea, right? God is okay with our questions. The Psalms are full of questions. Don't think you're owed an answer. God doesn't have to answer you. And sometimes he won't but it's okay to ask as long as you're asking in faith and not because you've started to doubt the good character of God. And so Jesus is gracious in response to this question that John has sent to him and he validates his own ministry and he does it in both deed and word his first answer is with a display of spiritual power. Look at verse 21 and 22. At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them. So understand what's, what's happening here. When Jesus answers them in speech, what does he say? Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. That means that after John's disciples came to ask Jesus this question, he took those disciples along with him into ministry so they could see everything he was doing. They saw him cure diseases and afflictions and evil spirits and give sight to the blind and raise people from the dead. They saw that. And so that, is the first validation of Jesus' ministry. John, you want to know if I'm the expected one? Do you expect the expected one to heal and to cast out evil spirits and to raise the dead? Because that's what I'm doing. And then he answers with speech. He informs these messengers that his actions were fulfilling messianic prophecies. And he pulls one out of Isaiah for the answer. He says in verse 22 that he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And in that response, there are at at, at least four different passages from Isaiah that Jesus is alluding to. The last of which was earlier quoted by Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry back in chapter 4. Jesus sent John's messengers then back to him with overwhelming evidence, both empirical and scriptural, that this man, Jesus, was indeed the expected one. He is the Messiah. But significantly, Jesus offered no explanation as to why that judgment that John had spoken about had thus far been withheld nor did he offer any encouragement that John might be delivered from prison which you, ha- you-, you have to think that was probably in the back of John's mind right? okay I'm going to ask him this question but I really hope he tells me I'm going to get out of here the only hint of encouragement was in the form of a beatitude that Jesus derived once again from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8. You see that in verse 23, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Sounds just like one of the beatitudes, right? We've seen them earlier in Luke, we saw them in uh, obviously, Matthew is the primary passage in which we see Beatitudes. But this is, this is one not included in the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain. This is unique for John. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. And the sense is, John, you and anyone else like you will be blessed if you don't fall away because of your disappointment with the way I choose to work. Saying, John, it's not your place to determine whether what I'm doing is what I should be doing. It's your place to believe, to trust in me, and to be faithful, even in prison, even to death. And John took heart and he remained steadfast to the end and I have to wonder how many of us are facing similar temptations today life isn't proceeding as you hoped it would We spent a lot of time this morning talking about different trials that people are going through in our fellowship things that none of us would have asked for things that none of us are enjoying Life isn't proceeding as we would have hoped, and we're wondering if God is really in control, or his promise is really true. Does he really love me like he says he does? John's not the only one who ever felt puzzled and disappointed. Many today say that we cannot believe in Jesus if spiritual salvation is his main interest rather than political or economic salvation. I've seen people who profess to be Christians fall away when they did not get the marriage partner that they hoped for or the healing or the prosperity they thought ought to be a part of their lives. So today, as much as ever, perhaps even more so in our very much self-focused contemporary culture, we need to live out this beatitude. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. You can only understand that, of course, in the context in which it is spoken. John was being tempted to take offense at Jesus because Jesus wasn't acting in the way John thought he ought to. He wasn't fulfilling the expectations that John had. And this is one of the problems with false teaching, isn't it? You look today at the prosperity gospel and, and you have people telling you, well, you ought to always be healthy and you ought to always be wealthy. And then it doesn't happen. You get sick. Right? You see those bills piling up. He say, well, this guy told me That this wasn't supposed to happen. And now, how many people start wondering not maybe this guy was lying, but maybe the Bible's not true after all. Maybe God's not who I thought he was. And it's not because God has changed. It's not because there's anything wrong with his revealed word. It's because people were taught lies. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me or offended at me. Blessed is the one who trusts me. That would be the same beatitude from a different perspective. Blessed is the one who lets go of his own expectations and trusts me even when he doesn't understand what I'm doing. Well, after sending John the Baptist's disciples back to him with that challenging answer... Jesus evidently sensed that some who heard his words might wrongly deprecate John's ministry. He was concerned that people might now look at John as something less than he was. What's happened to John? He came out preaching, he was baptizing everybody, now he's losing his faith? Maybe John's not who we thought he was. And Jesus isn't about to let that happen. So when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds, which were always around him at this point. And he began to speak about them concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. A reed swaying in the wind A reed shaken by the wind was a metaphor for what we might call today an easygoing person. And that didn't describe John at all. John rejected soft clothing, he preferred camel's hair to silk. There were no palaces for him, he preferred the wide open skies of the desert wilderness. And as a result, he was beholden to no one but God. Herod had never given him anything. And so he was free then to rebuke Herod when the time came to do so. A lot of pastors can learn from that these days. He was more than a prophet because he fulfilled the prophecy of Malachi chapter 3 as the messenger sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. The angel Gabriel had referred to this passage in Malachi when he announced John's birth to Zechariah, John's father. And Zechariah referenced the text again in his song at John's circumcision. And now Jesus cites it of him as well. So I think we can be pretty sure Malachi 3.1 is John the Baptist's life verse and it was assigned to him he was a great man jesus attested to this i say to you verse 28 among those born of women there is none greater than john john says jesus is the greatest man who ever lived except of course for jesus himself and there's a qualification in the last part of that verse yet he who is least in the kingdom of god Is greater than he. But that doesn't diminish the fact of John's greatness. The kingdom must be superior to its announcement. The people of the kingdom must be superior to the announcer. A position in the kingdom must be greater than its herald. Though, of course, John was also a member of the kingdom. So kingdom membership aside, John and his ministry were the greatest, greater than that of Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than Elijah. I mean, Jesus is really putting John up on a pedestal here. This divine validation set the stage for the ultimate revelation of the human condition, which would be seen in the response of the people. You see that in verses 29 and 30. As Luke records... Kind of parenthetically, the response of some when all the people and the tax collectors heard this. It's interesting, isn't it? How Luke puts those two together. (laughs) Tax collectors, he just all right. Tax collector, evil. That's it. And yeah, we're just gonna jump dump everybody else into that same bucket. The people and the tax collectors. When they heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So there's an example of grace, right? You take evil people, they hear Jesus speak, they believe everything he says. That's grace. That only comes about by the work of God. But, there's the righteous people. Right? You, you, you see the contrast, don't you? The people and tax collectors, evil. Pharisees, supposedly righteous. Right? From, from the outside looking in at the culture of first century Israel, that's what you get. And yet it was the evil people, the people and tax collectors, who went out to hear John, were baptized by him for, the repentance, and for, for, for repentance for the forgiveness of sin. But it is the so-called righteous ones, the Pharisees, we're told, and the lawyers will let the jokes go. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So the common people, including the outcasts, agree with Jesus' pronouncements regarding his and John's ministries. They declare God just. Literally, they justified God. On the other hand, the leaders, those who knew the ins and outs of the law, rejected what he said, acknowledging that it might apply to others, but not to them. Those Pharisees probably would have said, yeah, it's a good thing all these other people are here, but I don't need it. Yeah, John, go ahead, baptize them. They clearly need to be cleansed. But not me. So the explicit reason for people's either reception or rejection of Jesus' word is whether or not they had been baptized by John. John's baptism had become a spiritual dividing line in Israel, but not the way the Pharisees thought of it. John's baptism required confession and repentance of one's own sins, and one's unwillingness or willingness to do so made all the difference. Earlier, Luke wrote of John's ministry, and he said he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Mark records this in his parallel description. He says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sin. So when the common people hear John thunder forth, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say it for yourself, we have Abraham as our father. As they heard that, many of them were convicted of the truth of John's teaching. They saw their need. They knew that they were sinners deserving of the wrath of God. They repented and they were baptized. But Pharisees and lawyers who prided themselves on their keeping of the law, those who were content to rest the hope of their salvation on their own merits as well as their genealogy. They were not about to humiliate themselves by marching down into the water and letting this strange guy who lives in the wilderness baptize them. Now, of course, they never would have claimed that they had kept the law Perfectly, but they would have claimed that they had kept it sufficiently. And brothers and sisters, that is one of the most common, really universal excuses that people give for not believing the gospel. You go out on the street with Joe and with our evangelistic team and our brothers and sisters from Grace and Truth and you talk to people as I know many of you have in your own lives and you talk to them about their sin boy you're going to hear people tell you enough of course I'm not perfect but I'm good enough may not use those words but that's essentially what they're saying Because I'm better than that guy. Sorry, John, I didn't mean to. (laughs) I didn't kill anybody. Haven't stolen anything big. Never acted on my lust. I've got a neighbor you might want to talk to. He's got a lot of issues, but I'm okay. That's what fallen man does in order to rationalize his wickedness and his sin. And that's what the Pharisees would have done. They were sure that their final judgment would see them stand because their shortcomings, that's what they would have called it, God will call it sin, will be overlooked by the benign judge. So they considered John's insistence that God would not overlook their shortcomings, that they must repent and be baptized, as, as extreme. What was it that dulled the hearts of Israel's leaders that they would not repent? I suppose we could describe it in a number of ways. Certainly familiarity was a problem. There was certainly a professional familiarity with religious observance and uh, among the establishment, which is what the Pharisees were. In regard to this issue, C.S. Lewis wrote to a friend, Someone has said, None are so unholy as those whose hands are cauterized with holy things. Sacred things may become profane by becoming matters of the job. I've always been glad myself that theology is not the thing I earn my living by. Something that guys like me need to hear. My job, so to speak, is to be in the word and teaching the word. And there is a danger there, a danger of familiarity A danger that the ministry becomes a profession. It's like, all right, got to get up and do the job again today. There's a grave danger in that, but there's a danger for all of God's people in that. Because even here, as we're here this morning, there is a familiarity with being in this place, with these people. We come and every Sunday morning you open the bulletin and you know the passages will change and the songs will change but essentially it's the same thing same order of service right? which ought to cause you to be careful when you criticize other groups for their liturgy <laughs> we've got a liturgy everybody has a liturgy but You know, we can can stand and sing and there are sounds coming out of our mouths. Some pleasant and some not so much. But we can get through an entire hymn and not register anything that we have sung. We can listen to the word of God being read, and our minds are somewhere else. We can come to the Lord's table and not even give the meaning behind the table a second thought. It's familiarity. That was a problem for the Pharisees. There was also a shallowness, because the enemy works hard to keep church people from thinking too deeply about sin, there's a pervasive shallowness throughout the human condition. Uh, the great Puritan theologian John Owen wrote, He that has slight thoughts of sin never had great thoughts of God. Oh, I think that's so good. If you don't understand the depth of your sin, you cannot understand the greatness of the grace of God. You don't have any idea what God has done for you in Christ by pouring his grace out upon you if you don't realize the heinousness of your sin. And when we seek to minimize our sin, we are of necessity minimizing the grace of God. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Evangelicals' ignorance of what the scriptures say about sin makes us vulnerable to shallow doctrine. Many of you will remember a guy named Robert Schuller. He once said, Reformation theology failed to make clear that the core of sin is a lack of self esteem. The reason Reformation theology fails to make that clear, is because it's a lie. He went on to add that salvation means to be permanently lifted from sin and shame to self-esteem, and it's God-glorifying, human need-meeting, constructive and creative consequences. Now, I don't know what half of that meant, but I know it's all wrong. But this is what some will do in order to not have to deal with their sin. Real sin. Thousands of this man's naive readers imagined that sin is thinking ill of oneself. And by the way, you can just you know, change names here. Take out Robert Schuler, put in Joel Osteen, or you know, any number of others that refuse, as Osteen has stated publicly, refuse to talk about sin. He actually said this, right? This is a purported pastor. He actually said, that's not my ministry. But this is what's happening. Is what the Pharisees are doing. We're going to minimize sin. And in minimizing sin, I'm minimizing God. My sin's not so bad, so I really don't need him. But I do. I need him because I can't do anything about my sin myself. I'm helpless. My sin will hold me in bondage and I cannot break free. That is why I need Jesus who came to free me from sin not to make me think good thoughts about myself. If you want to think good thoughts about yourself, don't ever read the Bible. Okay? Because the Bible is going to tell you the truth that there is no one Who does good? Not one. The Bible will tell you that the best things you think you have ever done are filthy rags before God. But when God comes in, here's the great thing that some people don't think is so great. When God comes, and he changes you, and he draws you to his son. He doesn't only forgive your sin, he changes you, he changes who you are, he changes your heart, takes out your heart of stone, puts in you a heart of flesh, makes you a new creature, and he begins to change your thinking, and he begins to change your behavior, and he begins to change what you love and what you hate. And for those of us who are truly in Christ, that's a glorious thing. But there are those who hear the gospel and understand that that's what God will do, and they don't like that. And so that's what keeps them from the gospel. Some of you may be familiar with a philosopher named Mortimer Adler. He hesitated to become a Christian for precisely that reason. He said, There's, that, that's a great gulf between the mind and the heart. I was on the edge of becoming a Christian several times, but didn't do it. I said that if one is born a Christian... Yeah, nobody's born a Christian, but what did he know? I said that if one is born a Christian, one can be lighthearted about living up to Christianity. But if one converts by a clear conscious act of will... it's another thing he didn't understand. One had better be prepared to live a truly Christian life. That much he did understand. So ask yourself, he goes on, are you prepared to give up all your vices and the weaknesses of the flesh? He knew exactly what discipleship entailed, and he was not willing. Right? He counted the cost and said, nah, too high a price but God's word is clear it is precise in its estimation of every person who has ever lived none is righteous no not one their throat is an open grave they use their tongues to deceive the venomous asp is under their lips their mouth is full of curses and bitterness Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul takes all of those statements and allusions from the Old Testament, puts them all together there in Romans chapter 3. After, as we're seeing on Thursday mornings, after he has looked at the sin of Gentiles and the sin of Jews, he wraps it all up in chapter 3 and says, what I'm telling you guys is that sin is universal. No one has escaped it. We are all in the same condition. That's what the Pharisees didn't understand. And so Jesus kind of profiles those who are rejecting him. He goes on in verse 31 to say, To what then shall I compare the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another, and they say, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners." You can't win with these people. They're going to find any excuse they can to reject the truth. That's what the world does. Every time. Unless the Spirit of God is at work. Scripture is so clear on this. Unbelievers can't even understand spiritual things. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. They can't understand. Their their minds are are darkened. Their hearts are, are stoned. They are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, Paul says in Romans 1. Which means, when they hear the gospel, they're going to do everything they can to avoid dealing with it. And so... John the Baptist comes along. Said, "We're not going to listen to you. You don't eat or drink. You're living out as an ascetic in the wilderness. You're weird. We're not going to listen to a thing you say." And then Jesus comes along, and to Jesus they say, "We're not going to listen to you. You eat and drink." And you hang out with sinners. As if that's a bad thing. And so they demonize John and they scandalize Jesus. And it's what people do. They'll come up with any kind of excuse. You know that. If you're about the work of evangelism, what happens when you're talking to someone and they they raise a question and you answer that question and then Suddenly that question doesn't matter anymore because there's a different question. And they're entirely unrelated, but the questions keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. Why? Because they're suppressing the truth. And it doesn't matter how wonderful your answers are. That's not the issue because it's not a matter of the intellect. It's a matter of the will. They refuse to believe. As we all did. Until the Spirit of God changed us. Until the Spirit of God drew us to Jesus, until the Spirit of God put a new heart within us and enabled us to believe and repent. Two things which the Scripture says are gifts from God. What a grace it is to feel your need, what a grace it is to stand still as you mourn your sins. And confess them to God. That's a terrible and wonderful thing. It's a terrible thing to come face to face with who you really are and have to deal with what you think and how you speak and what you do and come to grips with the fact that it's evil. Top to bottom. But it's a wonderful thing when that happens because it drives you to the cross. It drives you to Jesus. Because if you, if you see your sin as it really is, it's only because of the Spirit at work in you. And if the Spirit is at work in you to show you your sin, he won't stop there. He will also show you Jesus. And he will show you how that need can be met. The analysis of unbelieving religious establishment that Jesus offers there in verses 31 to 34 was gloomy indeed, but verse 35 brings the blessing. Wisdom is vindicated. By all her children. The divine wisdom that Jesus sent to John has been vindicated in the experience of her children. Now personally, I know that the message of John and Jesus is true because of what Jesus has done in me. I know that. My experience of forgiveness from real guilt perpetually testifies to the grace of God at work within. And the longer I walk with Christ, and I I wonder if this is your experience too, the longer I walk with Christ, the more of my sin I see. That is the blessing of God too. Because he's changing me. And I'm seeing things in my life that I didn't see before. Because back then, he was dealing with something else. (laughs) I've got more sin in me than God. I'm never going to be able to deal with until the day I die that brothers and sisters is the normal Christian life God shows us our sin and we repent and he takes us on a little bit further and he shows us something else and I confess that that's what the Christian life is it's constant repentance and that's a glorious thing That's our sanctification. And I rejoice in that. It doesn't surprise me anymore. I was surprised when I was a young Christian because I thought, all right, well, I'm not swearing anymore, and I don't smoke, I don't drink. I got it made. Because I was stupid. <laughs> and I didn't understand sin. I didn't understand myself. And now I see all that is in me. And I hate it. But I see that God is greater than my sin. And I rejoice. Many unbelievers have seen this truth in the lives of their Christian friends. And when they do, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. You and I are the vindication of the gospel. If we're living faithfully in the gospel... If we give lip service to the gospel and then go out and live like the world, you're not going to see that happen. But if you go out into the world and you say to unbelievers, let me tell you about the God that I serve. Let me tell you how he has saved me. Let me tell you how he can save you. And if you do that and your life Changes so that it's in harmony with your message, then you are vindicating wisdom. That's what we're called to do. So that the world will stop looking for a salvation that is small enough to be earned. and find a salvation that cannot be earned because it is so great. A salvation that is given freely by the grace of God. So trust. That's what faith is. Simply trust. Trust in what God has promised. Trust in what God has done. Trust in the one who gave his life for sinners. Trust in the one who promises life to us. Father, thank you. We are so grateful, Father, for Jesus and for John the Baptist. Oh, Father, we are so grateful for the gospel. Father, we pray that you would work powerfully through your word as your gospel is proclaimed. Father, and work in your people to make us like Christ. Show us our sin, Father. Father. Not so that we will be driven to despair, but so that we will live in hope because your grace is greater than our sin. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.